go with me to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. I'm going to share a few verses from there. Those of you listening by podcast, I'm sorry you missed the two clips that we just showed, one of a boat. They were definitely going fast, weren't they? And they are definitely over the limit. And then you might be a redneck if you take an, an airbag and put a stack of tires. And uh, I want the guys to practice that this week and see if Jay, if we can get that. Jay's going, no, Corey will do it. Corey will do anything. Let's, let's, let's let Corey uh, try that out. But thank you for joining us this morning as we look at the theme or the thought under pressure. And uh, I think about pressure, and I think about different areas of pressure. I think one of the, f- the first things that I think about would be peer pressure. When I look through the Word of God, you know, the, the Bible is full of all kinds of ordinary people that did extraordinary things. And when you think about the peer pressure that must have been on Noah for 120 years to build something no one had ever seen or used or participated, something large enough to host all the animals of the world. Uh, for, for him, 120 years, for him and his three sons and three daughter-in-laws and wife to, to build that, there'd be a lot of pressure. There'd be a lot, of, a lot of laughter, a lot of making fun, a lot of, there's had to be a lot of interaction. You know, hey, Noah, what are you building? Hey, what, what are you doing? You know, when you look at Joseph and you look at the pressure of not sleeping with Potiphar's wife and the penalty uh, going to prison. You see all the pressure that must have been on him. Esther was under a great deal of pressure as she was called by God to stand before the king. And you got to remember the previous queen refused to stand before the king and the king removed her. So she was in threat of her life and in threat of her, of, her, of her reign. You know, I look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when all the world all the world, all, that nation, everyone bowed. The pressure of everyone bowing except for you. I think of Daniel in the lion's den to be told that he could not pray. And if he, would, if he prayed, he'd be thrown to the lions. And the peer pressure of maybe trying to rationalize or bargain with God or, you know, God, I'll, I'll, I'll pray in private. I won't pray where I usually pray. But he did not compromise in the pressure and how God rewarded him and how God blessed him. And, you know, I think about, I think about peer pressure I think about some pressure in my own personal life. As most of you know, I wasted a chunk of my life on drugs and alcohol, and God gloriously delivered me without any, um, I had no side effects. I had accident day after I gave my heart to the Lord. I got a 28-ounce framing hammer and a skill saw, and I went and started framing a unit that my company was, was doing the development on. And uh, when I think about drug addiction, I think about the bondage of drugs, I've got to go all the way back to seventh grade. I don't know if you can remember seventh grade, but in seventh grade, there was every time you went to the bathroom, we used to call it the head. I don't know what you guys called, we called it the head. And every time you go to the bathroom, either in between classes, in the morning break, afternoon break, or at lunch, you go in the bathroom, there'd be a, a, a bunch of guys in there uh, smoking a cigarette, and they would pass it around, and everybody would, would take a hit off of it. And I don't know exactly what made me when someone handed it to me. I don't know what made me take it, I guess because everybody else in that environment was doing it. And then I remember a few months after going in the bathroom and, and smoking, I remember one of my, I guess one of my co, co, co-students, I guess, uh, noticed I wasn't inhaling. And uh, we went out behind the football field, and, and he showed me how to inhale. And I remember that was my first buzz. That was the first time I experienced the euphoria of medication. And I, and I think about, you know, through the years, I think about the peer pressure, the, the, uh, the pressure of, of, of smoking pot. I was a freshman in, in co- college, and there was a mobile station that was cut off from the freeway and uh, didn't get very much business at all. So the owner, he owned several mobiles, the owner hired me to run the station on my college yard. I went to school every morning, 9 to 12. I'd open the station about 1 keep it open to five or six o'clock. And I remember a guy that I went to high school with, really we weren't that good of friends, but went to high school with, come by and say, hey, you want to smoke a joint? Well, you know, I never smoked a joint before. I said, okay. So we smoked a joint and nothing happened. So he came back the next day and said, hey, you want to smoke another joint? I said, yeah, I'll, I'll smoke a joint with you. And I smoked a joint with him and nothing really happened. And then the third day, he made up his mind that he was going to get me high. He went and got some Maui Wowie, some of that $200 ounce and I remember that I remember that day so so vividly. I was in a fog, 
could not think straight, could not see straight. And, and remember, I lost the keys to the station. I lost all, the whole set of keys to the station. I'm, I'm walking around. I'm looking everywhere. I'm looking. And then I go to the cash box, and there were the keys in the cash box. It's a miracle someone didn't open the cash box and take all the money out. But I, but I remember that day like it was yesterday, and immediately there was a connection. Immediately there was something that, that I enjoyed smoking pot. I enjoyed smoking with others. I guess I was a pothead. I mean, I didn't put a pot on my head, but that's what you call somebody that, you know, in, indulged in that. I remember alcohol. I remember cocaine. Family, it's, it's funny. It's amazing what you'll do with your cousins that you won't do with anybody else. And I remember one Christmas, we were, well, Grandma and Grandpa's, and all the kids were doing stuff. We usually go out, play football. But this particular day, I remember two of my cousins. I was the oldest, a younger cousin, and uh, a cousin by marriage, all got in a van and had a mirror and had three lines on it. And uh, they said, why don't you do a line? Well, I'd never done a line of Coke. And I, if you've ever been there, I did the worst possible thing that you can do. I choked, and all the Coke went all over the carpet. And they were on their, and they're trying to pick up the, uh, and uh, they never let me go first again. Uh, you hear, don't cry over spilt milk. They were crying over spilt Coke. But I, but I remember that was, the, that, was the, that was the peer pressure that I submitted to. And because I was a general contractor, because I had a lot of contractors working for me, because I dealt with developers, inspectors, and bank, I, I didn't want anybody to know that I was doing coke, so I shot coke through my toes because there was no mark on my arms. And so, and I remember someone taught me how to do that. As I look back in that nightmare of drugs, I realized it was the people that I was connected with that caused me to do some of the things that I did. And I remember the night, the, the morning after I gave my heart to God, I called my friends and I said, hey, I'm not better than you. I'm not, I'm not putting you down. I'm not degrading you. But I have lost my marriage. I've lost my business. I've lost my health. I've lost my home. I've lost my car. I've lost everything because of drugs. And I, I cannot come around anymore because I don't, I don't want to do drugs. And I broke, I broke that cycle. And I, again, I was not judging them. I just knew I couldn't go and be around them and say no. So I started hanging with people that didn't do drugs. I started hanging with people that encouraged me and built me up and plugged me into some of the places, opened some doors for me that needed to be opened. I look back, and I just celebrated 35 years of being clean, 35 years of being clean, of drugs, of alcohol. And, and I, as I reflect back, and I just want to visit just for a moment, as we have literally walked hundreds and through television, I don't know how many thousands, but hundreds through drug abuse and, and, and alcohol abuse and all of that. It, it's amazing that I, the very first memory I have of addiction is t tobacco. And in working with these kids the past 24 years, almost 90% of everybody I work with was addicted to tobacco. And then the last thing to leave, I've seen them give up heroin. I see them, I know I had a guy huffing gas. That was his high. I was kind of tough to keep him off of drugs because you walk around, he'd be the, have the van thing open and be huffing the gas. I said, no, don't. I said, we need that gas for the church van. You can't, can't huff our gas. But, but the first hook seems to be tobacco, and then it seems the last hook to actually get breakthrough is tobacco. But it lowers something. It, it undoes a filter. It opens a door in your life. And I just want to encourage you that, and uh, many of you can relate to what I'm about to say, but it was almost like every 30 seconds on television, there was something promoting tobacco. I remember Winston tastes good as a cigarette should, and they slashed out the as and put like. I remember Territon, I'd rather fight than switch. I remember the Marlboro man, how good looking he was. He had on that, that cooler jet, a nice horse, and he's out in the mountains. Of course, most of you died, know that he died horrifically of lung cancer. At the end of his life, he was smoking a cigarette through a tray. I think, I think about uh, Virginia Slims, a, a millimeter longer. I think about it, and it's, it's, it's scary how catchy all those commercials were. In your brain, I just randomly, I didn't practice, I just randomly just a few minutes ago just came up with five or six slogans that was the tobacco industry. And now we know the Surgeon General and probably should have determined a long time ago that it can hurt every area of your life. And I want to encourage you, if you're trying to get off tobacco, don't give up. Just just, just yes. cut back, cut back, try your, chew the gum, do, wear the patch, whatever it takes, because one out of every five Americans die of lung cancer. That means this front row, someone of that four is going to die of, lung, of these right here. 
One of you, one of you five are going to die of lung cancer. And so if this message doesn't do anything else this morning, but encourage you to surround yourself with people that will help you get off, I know that, I know that can be a blessing. Then I, talk about, then I think about not just peer pressure, and I, I, and I think about peer pressure, I think about my virginity. I lost my virginity because I found myself in the company of someone that was very knowledgeable, and I was not. As I look back, some of the stupid, stupid things I did in life, it was usually because someone talked me into it, dared me, or influenced me. And then I got to Tennessee. I learned the famous last words of a redneck are, watch this, Mom. And certainly I've seen some crazy things that people have done on jet skis or boats or, or, or whatever they were doing. So I, when I think of peer pressure, I also think of marital pressure, the pressure that's on a marriage today. In the days of Noah, divorce was such, an, was such rampant that people were marrying, getting divorced, getting married, getting divorced, getting married, getting divorced. And it obviously affected the nation of that particular time. And I think about the pressure that a husband and wife has of living together, being one, trying to do things together, trying to stay in love, trying to stay focused. I reminded of an elderly gentleman been married quite a while, was having some health problems. So his wife called the doctor. They made an appointment. They went to the doctor's office. The doctor ran some tests, ran some x-rays, ran some stuff, came back to the room, said, I've got some results back from a test. So she told her husband to wait in the lobby. And he said, yes, ma'am, because she pretty much told it, told, told what was going to happen. So she, he goes out in the lobby. And so she asked the doctor, well, what's going on? I said, he said, listen, your husband's really not that bad off. All he needs is some home-cooked meals, a bit of love and affection, a little smooch, and that's all he needs, just a little appreciation. She said, okay, thank you. So goes out in the lobby. And her husband said, what did the doctor say? And she said, the doctor said you'll be dead in a week. <laughs> Thank you for that, that uh, obligatory. Uh, lap. When I think of, when I think of, um, I can't remember writing. When I think of pressure, I think of, I think of financial pressure. I think of all the, all the pressures that's on us just in our, in our day-to-day shopping, we know that when you go into the store, they put the higher price items at eye level. So you see them first before you see the lower price. And you know, you go to Walmart, they've always got killer deals. I mean, it's like, it's like you can't live without this lawn chair. You need this lawn chair. And it's marked down 40%. And in every area, it seems like there's never enough money to go around. It just seemed like things are so tight. Even now with both husband and wife working and both contributing, it's like everywhere we turn, the pressure is phenomenal. We know that if you're in Georgia or California, the gas is almost $4 a gallon. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but property taxes just went up. Insurance, if you're a landlord, insurance has just gone up. And it seemed like a, a gallon of milk is like $5. And you, and you see things going up and on up, but we're not getting raises. We're not getting more money. It seemed like the government is getting all, should I have not said that? It seemed like the, you know, we come to the house of God and give God the tithe, but the state of Tennessee also gets 9.6%, which is almost, I mean, how scary is it that the government is getting as much as God to finance the kingdom? And I'm not sure exactly what the government is uh, financing. They just spent about $800,000 to confirm that bumblebees were not gay. Don't ask. I mean, I sure. I should, hello. I sure could have. I should have spent that eight hundred thousand something a lot better. And all these com- these countries are coming against us. We give them four hundred thirty-one million dollars a year so they can afford to eat and afford to survive. And then they're running terrorists and they're blowing up our children. I mean, how? What a scary world that we live in. And all that associated to pressure. I think of. I think of mental pressure. I think of the stress of just life, just the stuff that we're going through. The Phone calls I've received this week have been life-threatening. And, and, you know, a lot of times we get to a place where the only solution to that mental stress is Xanax or Valium or we medicate. And what is so crazy, we've been taught from little children to medicate. When I think of Alice in Wonderland, one pill made you smaller, one pill made you tall. You remember that? I remember that there was a song by the Rolling Stones entitled Mother's Little Helper, and it was a song about every day the wife going to the medicine cabinet to help supplement her day. And, and, and I, when I think of the medicine cabinet, I think as a child growing up, I, I had in the, in the kitchen, there was a cabinet 
that if we, had, if we had a cough, mom would pour out some cough syrup. If we had a headache, mom would dish out some Tylenol. And even in the Davis household, there's one cabinet, and, and we've been there 24 years, and it's always been the very same cabinet, that in that cabinet there are things that will, will help you feel better. And understand, we, I know we've got to have that in life, and we have that to help our children. But subconsciously, it's almost providing the children an escape. If you don't feel good, medicate. If you can't sleep, take Benadryl. If you can't this, take that. And I think that our society has paid that price because of the drug abuse and the things happening, all the pressure concerning that. And then I think of physical pressure. I remember there was a, there was a time probably at the age of 30, there was no fear. We would climb mountains. We would jump out of boats. We would do a lot of stupid things. But the closer I get to 60, the more that I realize this old gray mare just ain't what she used to be. I mean, even, even now the chore, and most of you know I have a broken back and two broken wrists, so the chore, I used to like flop, I used to flip out of bed, now I flop out of bed. Now I barely make it out of bed and I make it downstairs, and I, I can do it in the dark. You hit that coffee, you put the coffee cup going, I get my coffee, I pass, pass a Rhonda in the hallway, strange in the night, we don't say a word, we don't grunt. We don't, she takes the steps. She does that Chanti thing. She takes the steps one at a time. And I'm, I'm at the bottom waiting for her so I can go up and look out my window and do my <laughs> devotions. And I, I told her the other day, I said, 60 years old, I said, I'll never make it to 80. I'll never make it to 80. I am wore out, wore down. And I preached a sermon one time, 40 and fabulous, 50 and reflective, 60 and senile. And I don't know what 70 brings, but I'm sure there's something there. Oh, I get free coffee at Wendy's. That's, there's some things that we have to look forward to. But I think of all the pressure on us and even, even the spiritual pressure. You know, when, when, I was living, when I was living in the world, nobody gave a flying flip what I did with my life. But it seemed like the moment I gave my heart to God and started attending a church, people saying, you're going to that church, that tongue-talking church, you're going to that, you're, you're listening to that. It's, it's funny, even the pressure of serving God is to a place right now where, and it's, it's very ironic, is that the world expects more out of us than we expect out of us. And let me make that kind of plain. I have been a landlord for 20-some-odd years, and there have been times when people didn't pay their rent, I had to evict them. And I've, I've noticed not, not once, not twice, but several times they will, they will react with, well, I thought you were a Christian. Well, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm going to pay your rent. Hello, if you don't pay your rent, that means I pay it, and I go home and tell my wife, hey, we can't eat at Taco Bell this week because I spent all of our grocery money on paying your rent. That ain't going to fly, but there's so much pressure in just trying to serve God, just trying to stay consistent, trying to be what God wants us to be. And we got the church pulling on us for the tithe. we got the church pulling on us Wednesday and Sunday attendance. We've got the church... Matter of fact, I need everybody tomorrow to bring a gallon of milk and a, and a, and a box of cereal. We've got, we got, we got a family right now. They're not eating. They have absolutely no food whatsoever. We've got food in the log. We're going to get food to them. But it's like not only is my boss putting pressure on me, and not only is my school putting pressure on me, my wife's putting pressure on me, my church is putting pressure on me, is I'm kind of like in a pressure cooker world, and it seems like things could blow up at any minute. Can anybody relate? When I think of tire pressure, I, I visited with a lifelong friend, uh, a tremendous, tremendous man of God, pastors in Miami, had 3,800 Easter Sunday, and we go there and preach for him, and we're booking a meeting a little later in the year. But I said, I'm going to tell your story next Sunday. His story, he was, uh, he was a, in Vietnam. He was a helicopter mechanic and uh, was raised in church all of his life and started getting around the guys, started drinking, started partying, and started being a hellion. And one day they were changing the tire off the helicopter, which is a split rim, and you guys will know about that. But when he was putting the air in the, in the split rim, the tire exploded and cut his leg off. And uh, when, I, when I met him the first night, I met him. I walked up to the house, knocked on the door, and he was sitting on the, he was sitting on the couch with just one leg. That was kind of a, that was kind of a, a moment there we had because, you know, I didn't, I'm not used to seeing people sit around with one leg, but I just made up my mind. I just started golfing, and I made up my mind I was going to take him out on the golf course and take advantage of him, and I did. I went out there and whacked the ball and made him look bad, and we were on like the fifth tee, and the, and the golfers had backed up like two or, three, two or three carts, and so he went up and went to drive, and when he drove Hannah and he swung, his leg fell off right there on the right there on the on the tee box, and so 
And so what I did, I was so embarrassed because I don't want people to think that I was taking advantage of a one-legged golfer. So, Patty, I went and got my, and I, and I limped up to him, and I helped him put the, I helped him put the leg back on, and then I walked up to the ball, and I didn't hit it very well. It, it just was not a good whack, but all the guys were, were clapping because I guess they thought that I was handicapped too. But I think about, I think about that, tarp, that, that pressure. That there are things in your life that will make you change the road that you're on. To be something you've never been, you've got to do something you've never done. To have something you've never had, there's got to be some change in your life. And I have learned that you cannot change what you tolerate. What you put up with, you cannot tolerate. And, and, and Pastor Ron and I were making some decisions of some things that we wanted to do. And we decided that we wanted to go to a place where we're celebrated, not tolerated. And I, and I believe that's, impo- I think that's important in life that as you begin to hang around people that are accomplishing things, hopefully that peer pressure will rub off on you and you want to be just a little bit better. You want to be a little better. If you'll go with me to 2 Corinthians, if you're there already, I just um, kind of had my eyes open to this particular passage of Scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin at verse 6. And I, I have always been of the mindset that God will not put more on you than you can bear. How many has heard that? I mean, it's, it's in Scripture. Paul said it. But God will not put more on you than you can bear. And I can remember in Savannah, Georgia, Keith Daly and I were ministering, and I got real sick. And I was, matter of fact, I went from there to the Savannah Hospital for a week, and then I went from there to ORU University, and I stayed at uh, City of Faith for six. I was at Savannah for a week, but then I went to City of Faith how many weeks? Well, there you have it. So anyway, whatever, whatever she said, that's how long that I was there. And I, I, re, I remember laying on the bed telling Keith, I said, Keith, the Bible says that God won't put more on you than you can bear. But I really feel there's more on me than I can bear. I really feel like I, I'm, I'm going to snap. And that, that anxiety pressure comes in and everybody wants you to take a Xanax or a Valium or have a drink. Of course, the world has a way to try to medicate your fear and your apprehension. But I found myself at a place where I really didn't understand what the Word of God had to say about God putting more on me. I don't, I don't want you to lift your hand, but have you ever been to a place where you said, I can't take it anymore. I mean, I am at my, I'm at my limit. I'm at, I, I cannot generate another positive moment. I cannot think of another positive thought. I mean, it's bad. Every area of, it, of it's bad, and my dog just bit me. And it's pretty bad when your dog bites you. Then you know you're really, you're really bad off. So in, in all of that, God won't put more on you than can bear. Reading from the, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, and the sixth verse. I'm going to just jump in. Let me, let me start at verse 5. For all the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And what Paul is saying, if we're going to suffer for him, then we're going to be blessed with him also. If there's, if there's a price to pay, there's going to be a blessing. There's going to be a turnaround moment in your life. Verse 7. Verse 6. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the during the same sufferings which we also suffered, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. King James, a little tricky there, a little, little wordy there. But here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The things that happened to us are going to be written down that later there are people that's going to go through the same thing we're going through, and they're going to read that we went through it also and we survived. You are a part of someone's salvation. You are a part of someone's blessing. I've had people call me in the past few months and say, I have no clue how you're, how you're handling what you're handling, how you're going through what you're handling, but it, it makes me feel like my problems aren't so bad. Can you relate? Right. I once complained that I had no shoes. So I met a man that had no feet. It can always get worse. It can, look at someone and say, it can always get worse. I had a friend broke his leg, and I said, it could be worse. He said, what could be worse than having your leg broke right in the middle of ski season? I said, it could have been my leg. <laughs> Verse 7. Our hope, is, our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that if you're partakers of the sufferings, so shall be also the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed, there's that pressure, you see it? Pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Wow, Keith, what a tough, what a tough scripture. 
This is a guy that has seen a vision, has seen Jesus, was blinded, was restored. This is a guy that has written two-thirds of the, of the New Testament. This is a guy that's talked with God. And he said, we even got to a place where we didn't want to live anymore. Have you ever, 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 ever been there? You ever been where, and you never would. And I'm, and I'm sure some things in my heart because I never, ever, never, ever, ever would ever take my life, ever, just because of the responsibility, the love of my family, the purpose and all that, I wouldn't take my love. But there have been seasons in my life where I have felt the spirit of suicide set, set in my car. And we'd be driving down the road, and, and I would pick out a, and it was, usually a, it was usually a dump truck coming the opposite direction, about 50 miles an hour. I said, if I pulled over and hit him head on, it wouldn't hurt, it wouldn't hurt him. And then you know why I never did it? Because I'm thinking, you'll probably survive. You probably won't die. You'll probably be paraplegic the rest of your life, and you'll have to eat through the straw. And, and then there have been, there've been times when I, did, I didn't want to. I'll tell you the funniest story. There's been times when I saw a vehicle coming, and I, I, don't, I don't know if it's sub. I don't know if, maybe you've never been there. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm freaking you guys out. Maybe I ate too many drugs in the 70s. But, but, but there's been to a place where there was sheer hopelessness. And you couldn't wait till the end of the day so you could go to bed. And, and, and did you know that depression is the number one leading illness in America? Number one is depression. And it's like, it's like, it's like even our kids, we're medicating our kids. Even our, even our kids are depressed. Oh, well, he needs Ritalin. He needs this. She needs that. She needs this. But we are a generation that is miserable. We're unhappy. And I believe the reason we're unhappy and we're miserable is because we really haven't caught a concept of the God that we serve. We really have not. I see some big theological explanation or he's a hundred million light years from here or he's got this, he's got this whip and he beats you and expect all or he, he wants more of you. And it's like, it's like I told the kids Monday night when I was their age, and this may help you when I was, when I was a young person and a teenager, I didn't have my own relationship with God. We didn't have a youth pastor. We didn't have a service every week just for us. I went to my parents' church I sang my parents' song. I worshiped my parents' God. I read my parents' Bible. And so when I turned 18 and, 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 I, and I found myself in the world because there really was not a personal relationship, I sought to satisfy a hole in my heart. And I, I know that we're body, soul, and spirit. And I know as far as the, the, the body, you can lift weights or you can do your hair or you can you can do your nails and, and you know physically you can satisfy that that seed and then I know that the soulish man you can study you can travel you can get a doctorate you can learn different languages you can be edu- like Jay's dad so educated almost a, almost a genius but but the the working out and the mental ability will never satisfy the spiritual there's a, there's, a, there's a third of me that belongs to God, and there's a seed lying dormant in my womb, and until I speak to that seed, and I accept Christ as my Savior, and I fire that seed up, and that seed begins to germinate, and I start feeding myself spiritually and hanging around spiritually and find out my, I need my own relationship with God. I don't need my kids' relationship. I don't need Jimmy Swagger's relationship. I need my relationship with God. And I think a lot of people um, last Sunday there was a young man that gave his heart to the Lord after the testimonies of the youth. And uh, Monday I went to check on him. He said, man, I felt something I never felt before. And this is a guy uh, my age has experienced a lot, of, a lot of things. And I told him, I said, you know, you may not feel that every time you go to church. But that, that euphoria, that ain't no high like the Holy Ghost high, ain't no party like the Holy Ghost party. Those things come with relationship, and it begins by starting your money in devotions. I said, listen, God doesn't expect you to talk a whole lot. Just get along somewhere. Get a cup of coffee. He smoked. I said, get a cigarette. Get a cup of coffee and a cigarette, and, and, and just get along with God in the morning. Just listen. He may say something to you. And so that, that, that euphoria or that high of feeling the power of God, that is developed through relationship, like anything else, a, a, a marriage or a, or a date or a friendship. The more quality time you spend, the more you know about the person you're hanging with and you're able to tap in those things that he has, like the peace that passeth all understanding or the joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I don't know why today, but I just, I just feel very, very strong in this area. The only two reasons that people take drugs, there's only two, 
is either to get high, that's the coke, the meth, the alcohol, or to get mellow. That's the opiate, that's the, that's the Xanax, that's the hydros, that's the Oxycontin. So, so we put drugs in our body to get all high, or we put drugs in our body to get all mellow. When God's word says there are two things he wants you to have, two things he wants you to tie into, watch this. He wants you to have the joy unspeakable and full of glory, which is better than coke, better than meth, better than drugs. And he wants you to have the peace that passeth all understanding, which is better than hydro, is better than oxy. So the reason the world is medicating is because they never have had a personal relationship where Jesus Christ, where it wasn't a book of don'ts, a list of rules, but, it, but it's having your own thing with God. And you, can, and you can do that. He's not hiding from you. He's really not. He just wants to know how serious you really are, how committed you really are. And I remember in life, there's, at a very young age, we'll commit to things and never follow up. Can you relate? I'll take piano lessons. I'm going to be the next Dino. And about three weeks later, we're burnt out. Come on, help me. I want to play the trumpet. I, well, the trumpet's too. Play some, I remember my parents telling me, play something cheaper. <laughs> in third grade, I started off in trumpet, played all the way through junior high school. And, uh, and I love it. It gave me, it gave me, a, it gave me a, a view of music as a language. Music is a whole other language, incredible way to, to communicate. But so many times, we'll make a commitment, especially around the first of the year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that body by V. I'm going to do the Shanti. I'm going to eat the Juice Plus. I'm going to cut out all sugar. Well, almost all sugar out of my, I'm going to get some good sleep. I'm going to do this. And that lasts for about 48 hours. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to get a cheeseburger. <laughs> are, are, are you with me? So we are, we are taught, watch this. We are taught to compromise. Every, all, all of the advertisement field is to take you away from this place and put you over here. That, it's, it's a struggle. It's a constant pressure going on in your head. Whether you, where do you go to eat, where you go to shop, where you buy your clothes, where you take your vacation, what kind of hobbies you have. And so that's, that's the environment of the world. But serving God is a stability that you will know. He will never leave you or forsake you even at the end of the world. Somebody give God glory for that. In this particular passage of Scripture, let me read just one more verse if I may. But we had this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. What a scary place to feel like a death sentence has been placed upon you. And in that death sentence, there's what's called the Green Mile. You probably read the book or saw the movie with Tom Hanks. But there's a special place they keep inmates on death. And I've been there. There's a special place they keep uh, death, inmates on death row. And then there's a place where they, what am I looking for? Not assassinate, but execute. Thank you, Pastor. They execute. And in that, in that, in that, green, in that green Mile, there are some that have been on death row for 25 years. Can you imagine every morning waking up knowing the sentence of death is upon me? I'll never, ever eat another taco at Taco Bell. I will never, ever see another sunrise. I will never go to another theater. I'll never ride in a hot rod Camaro. I am doomed to die. And I, and I think there's a lot of people that they may not consciously say it, but subconsciously, there are people that are at a place they feel like, I would rather be dead. I would, I would just rather not even survive. Why, why did God even let me? I've had people tell me, why did God even allow me to be born? Because he really has a plan, and it really is a great plan, and it's just for you. But all the world, all society tries to strip you from that before you get to a place where you can pursue God. And here's what Paul said. A death sentence has been placed upon us. I think the guys are going to pull it up. You don't have to go there. 2 Kings 20. And I, guys, I don't have a clock. I don't know if you planned that. You just want me to. I'm only page one. I've got six pages. Someone said, hurry, get to the main. This is the main thing. Man, a lot of pages in this Bible. Look at your neighbor and give me a break. I feel the hostile looks at me. Second Kings 20. 
in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Look at somebody and say, That's a negative report. And nobody, say that nobody, nobody. wants their pastor to tell them they're going to die and not live. But that was the word from the Lord. This king is going to die. Get your house in order. In other words, pick out what you want to be buried in. Pick out your coffin. Who do you want to sing at your funeral? And I'll, I'll be glad to sing if you need me. Who, who do you want to, what, what eulogy, what, what place you want to be buried? Get ready to die. But notice what this, what, this, what this guy does. Then he turned Hezekiah, his face to the wall, and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember me how I have walked before thee as a truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And then he wept sore. The Living Bible says he broke down and cried. He's told by the man of God he's going to die. Turns his face to the wall. That's, that's to make sure there's no distractions. He's not distracted by the TV or by the hamsters or anything. He's focused. He's turned the wall. And he said, God, remember me. I have served you. I've done the best that I can I'm, I'm, I love you. I care about you. I want you in my life. And then he just, he just, he just, he just wailed. He just cried. And we know that, that Psalms 501, David said, Give ear to my word, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry. There are special cries that God hears regardless of anything else. Yeah. And, Isaiah, and as before, so as Isaiah was going out in the middle of court, that the word of the Lord came to him, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up in the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days 15 years. Wow, how cool is this? The man of God knocks on the door, walks in and says, hey, get your house in order, you're going to die. Okay, that's, that's a word for life. That was the plan of God. Watch this. The king turns his face against the wall, Reminds God of his faithfulness, reminds God of serving him. And before Isaiah can leave the front yard of the king's house, God says, go back and tell Hezekiah, I've heard his cry. I've seen his tears. I'll answer his prayer, and I'll give him 15 years. There's a, there's a passage of scripture here I really don't have time to, to elaborate. But the king asked God for a sign. The king asked, give me a sign. And Isaiah said, do you want me to turn the shadow of the clock forward 10 degrees or turn the shadow of the clock backward 10 degrees? And I understand that's two hours either way. And, and the king said, well, it's easy, it's easy to turn back the time. It's so easy to live in our past. Man, I wish I had a, a moment there. But, but I want to see it turn forward the time. And, the, and God actually turns the clock forward two hours. Hezekiah gets his sign, and the homeopathic Isaiah said, get a bunch of figs, put it on the boil, and you shall live. Now, I'm not telling you a fig sandwich is the, the solution to what's going, going you through, but it does not hurt to eat right. Hello. Then it, it costs you a thing. I know we didn't get a whole lot of response out of there, but I did write it down just for you. Okay, let me, let me, let me go back to, go, go back with me to 2 Kings. And I just want to ask you a question. What turned things around, 2 Corinthians, what, what turned things around in Hezekiah's life? Anybody? Prayer. Okay, okay say, it, say it out loud. Prayer. Say it like you mean it. Prayer. Prayer. Verse 11, 2 Kings. You also, helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks, may be given by many on our behalf. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, we're the place where we ain't going to make it. And we're a place where we have given up the death sentence is upon us, but we realize that we serve a God that even if we die, he can raise us from the dead. But your prayers is what it's going to take to turn things around and allow us to survive. What a powerful, powerful, powerful truth. And, you know, we hear all the time, you need to pray more, you need to meditate more, you need to study more. And especially, Hannah, the generation that we have today, where, where was I the day that I counted 31 people, 31 people on the phone? Oh, yeah, it was a red light. Thir thir 
I mean, I mean, it's like I went somewhere and, and he, he had his phone on and he had it. And I said, I may as well get on my phone. Everybody's on their phone. And, and so we all, we all have confidence speaking to the little box that we can't. Well, you can Skype, I guess. But you look at this box, you can't see yourself. But, but we have confidence that we can talk all the way around the world. I don't know the farthest. I think when I was in, I think when I was in North Africa, I called Holmes. That's probably the longest phone call I've ever made. But, but we have as much, we have more faith in that little phone than we have in actually talking to God. And I know you've heard this before. We'll drive up to Burger King, order it our way, and get offended if they leave out the straw. Come on. More of us, some of us have more confidence in Burger King's speaker. You can't see the girl, but you know she's there. Can I have your And you say back, I want three tacos. And, and when you get there, you expect that they, they, they understood your order. We, we put more. Come on. We put more to bend on Taco Bell. I can remember um, this week, I, Pastor Ronna said, what do you want to eat? And I told her what I wanted. And then I typed back in, I text back in there. I said, and that banana, that, that banana pudding pie, get me a piece of that banana. And she texts back and said, sorry, I've already left. I said, oh, well, no banana pudding. And then she texts back and said, they left out the barbecue sauce so you get your pie. So Pastor Ronna went all the way back. Got the barbecue, because you can't eat brisk without barbecue sauce. Hello, you got to have that, that, that sauce to go with it. And so they forgot the sauce. So what was the point that I was making? We, we put more demands on Shane's ribs, or we put more demands on Lifeway than we put on God. And God said, ask and expect to receive, seek and find, knock and it shall be opened. Go ahead, give the Lord a hand. For the sake of time, I won't do that page or that page. If you go with me to Jeremiah, I will, I will conclude. I will, I will share the rest of this next week because I really feel like Jeremiah 18. In our, in our day-to-day walk, and this, it doesn't matter whether I'm mowing lawns or I'm painting a rental or, or working in the garden. Our day-to-day, my day-to-day life is usually helping to the best I can solve problems. I'm a problem solver. I operate better under pressure. When, 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 and those who've been with me, you know, there have been some pretty scary times here. We had a woman die in my arms in the parking lot of this church. I had to tell the family. The one daughter went completely nuts, had to restrain her. There's been, as I reflect back, there have been some really, really, really bad things happen to really, really, really good people. And you try to maintain a certain level of Faith and confidence and hope. My personality tries to see it half full. I try not to see it half empty. I try, I try no matter where we're at, I always try to see there's got to be something good that can come of this. But I have learned, and I've learned through Jeremiah, the 18th chapter, that bad things happen to good people while they're serving God. Serving God does not mean that you're immune from blisters. Serving God does not mean that you're immune from a cold. Serving God doesn't mean that your kids are not going to mess up. Serving God does not mean that you're not going to go through a divorce or go through bankruptcy or, I mean, I mean, and a lot of times as a pastor, my attitude is not with the circumstance, but my attitude is towards God. Because I can, on any given moment, I can quote you 500 scriptures that tell you how good God is and what God promises to do, to never leave us or forsake us, greater is he that is in us, ask and it shall be given. All, all those positive, assertive scriptures. But God is not some genie that gives us three wishes. God doesn't twiddle his nose and whatever you need comes to pass. We are involved in a battle called life. And there are bad things out there like tigers, lions, 
despairs that can hurt you and wound you and mess up your mind and shake your confidence in God. I got a special friend. I've never met him. We've never talked on the phone. We communicate every day. He got some really, really bad things wrong in his body. We graduated from the same Christian high school in Southern California. He was a couple years later than me. He's a double doctorate, well-educated, has not been able to work anymore because of his body. When his precious daughter was two, he lost her. And so with the physical, with the daughter, with all, with all of that, he has decided there's not a God. And I'm not, I'm not arguing with him. We're not, we're not Facebooking back and forth. But what I'm trying to do, I'm just trying to maintain a certain level of consistency and say, if there is a God, I'm going to pray. He's going to help you. If there's not a God, I'm here for you. I mean, that, that kind of relationship, that makes sense. Notice, if you will, Jeremiah 18. I'm going to read it from the... Living Bible. Here's another, you got King James up there. That's okay. King James is good. Here's another message, Jeremiah, from the Lord. Go down to the shop where clay pots and jars are made, and I will talk to you there. I did as he told me, and he found the potter working at his will. But the jar that he was forming didn't turn out as he wished, so he kneaded it into a lump. And started all over again. Then the Lord said, you see where it says Israel? I want you to put your name there. I want you to put your name there. Todd, Rhonda, Debbie, Hot Rod. Hot Rod, can't I do to you as this potter has done to this clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. There will be times in life when there are no explanations. There will be times in life when there will be no scripture that you can go to that will solve the issue or solve the frustration. But in, in spite of all that, there's got to be knowledge, connection, information that you've got to know that you are in the hands of the Lord. And in the hands of the Lord, there can be a hurt. There can be a wound. There can be a divorce. There can be an addiction. There can be a, a, a catastrophe. There can be a, a miscarriage. That in the hands of the Lord, things can happen. But he does not throw us aside. He does not discard us. But he makes us into a more comely vessel. And I, and I got to think about Joni Erickson. I've got, I don't remember what I I got to think. I got to think about, had a, I guess she had a stroke. Some, she's always like that? Or an accident. In an accident, completely paraplegic from the neck down, and she paints with her mouth. And it's like when you see, when you see some of our, our heroes that have come back with, with, with prosthetic limbs and you see the races of the things that they perform, they, they are like that clay that while they were in God's will, while they were doing what God wanted them to do, there was a bang. There was a bump in the road. And instead of getting bitter, instead of getting hostile, instead of just going out and, do, and doing something stupid like Job, though he slay me, I'm still going to trust him. Because there's a very good possibility the stuff that you're going through is not necessarily to help you, but it's to help the next person that's going through the stuff that doesn't think they're going to make it, but you made it. You have been to hell and back. That's the secret. You've been back. Give yourself a hand. You're back. You're not in hell anymore. You are back. And obviously, if you've been around me very long, you will know that I love the formation of a pearl. I love the formation of the wine islands. For millions of years, a volcano burped and threw all that hot lava and all that ash, and it 
it, 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 it cooled, it solidified, and then another layer, then another layer, then another layer. Probably took millions of years for the wine islands to, to be put where they're at right now. I got a quote here I wanted to read you. Because thinking about the pearl and thinking about the butterfly, the butterfly starts off a real ugly-looking caterpillar, and then it builds a cocoon and goes through a, a crushing, and you don't see that in crushing, and then that beautiful butterfly em emerges from there and flies off and gets eaten by a sparrow. <laughs> you notice nobody ever has caterpillar collections. You notice that? What are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm, out, I'm, out, I'm out photographing caterpillars. No. Nobody wants to remember that process. That's right. Nobody wants to remember the crushing. Right. No one's remember the, the breaking of the bone and the twisting and, the, and, and all of that. Form. Nobody, nobody wants to remember how they got to where they're at. Everybody likes to remember where they're at. Let me read this to you. A diamond is a piece of charcoal that handled stress exceptionally well. A diamond is a piece of charcoal that handled stress exceptionally well. As every head is bowed, every eye is closed, just for a moment. Father, I pray that this, this has been a message of encouragement, a message of stability, a message of confidence that we would not be bitter or remain bitter or get angry or remain angry over the bad things that have happened, not just to us, but to our parents, to our children, to our loved ones and our friends, that we wouldn't get bitter over a divorce or a bankruptcy or an addiction, that we would not lose hope in the final picture that yes, we're a grain of sand in the womb of that oyster and we're being regurgitated upon every day. Yes, we're that piece of charcoal under extreme pressure. Yes, we're that caterpillar in that cocoon that's going through a crushing and a struggle and a, and a battle. But you know the last of our days and you know what you have for us and you know what you have promised We've been told that we've been placed upon this earth to be three things. That we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And we are a song in the night. If we are a light, then we are to shine brightly the path that leads to the cross. If we are that salt, then we are life to cause others to be thirsty and to, and to seek after the things that we have and we have done and that we walk in. If we are to be a song in the night, then our life is to be not just lead them to the cross, not just give them an appetite for the things of God, for us to encourage them, for us to be a blessing. The cup would be half full, not half empty. That our, our attitude would determine our altitude, that we would make provision that where we're at right now, we won't be here long. We're moving on. We're moving into that next level in that next place you have for us. Not that it'll be any quieter, any less confusing, any less turmoil, but we will pass this test and we will go on to the next test. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And they all said...